Howdy, everybody, and welcome again to Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss, your host. Glad to have you along and joining me once again in studio, as you did last time, Ray Nostein, the edit, uh, editor of Religion and Liberty magazine here at Acton and author of numerous commentaries for us. Ray, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And joining us on the phone, we're very pleased today to have best-selling author and economic historian Amity Schles, uh, who is most recently the author of The Forgotten Man, A History of the Great Depression. Fantastic book for those who may have not read it. And the forthcoming new biography of Calvin Coolidge, appropriately titled Coolidge. Um, and that one is yet to be released, but uh, soon to be on the market. Amity, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, uh, first of all... Um, want to talk a little bit about how you came to uh, to want to write about Calvin Coolidge. And I've just been rereading The Forgotten Man over the last couple of weeks. And Calvin Coolidge's name pops up a few times in there. I noticed, uh, I, I, I always remember that in the, uh, in the section in the middle of the pictures, there's a picture of Calvin Coolidge dressed as a cowboy. You refer to him as the minimalist president, sort of in contrast to the, uh, to the work that uh, the New Dealers undertook. I'm just curious, um, I would assume that the work that you did on The Forgotten Man led you to have a greater interest in Coolidge and his administration and his time. Is that true? Yeah, that is true. It's sort of like writing, um, sometimes I feel like Steven Spielberg or, uh, you know, any any movie producer. You make the movie and then you want to make, what, the prequel, right? <laughs> yes. This is the prequel to Forgotten Man because Coolidge, it, or put it another way, the 1930s are about how they messed it up. That's what The Forgotten Man is about, how governments messed it up or mm-hmm. made it worse, it being the economy, the country. So that's a wonderful topic, a little scary, how they messed it up. So then came to me the question, how did they make it better? Or what, what was it like when it was good before it was messed up? And that period of the 20s, and in fact, the 20s didn't start out great. We came out of a quite you know, disruptive war, the, the unemployment was high, there was strong inflation. Sure. So there, some of the factors we have today, uh, a lack of certainty for the future, potential of great strikes, and somehow the government in the 20s made it better, made uncertainty less or made things more certain. And that's fascinating to us now because we have an uncertain situation. So this is the prequel uh, to the 30s. But for me, it's also something of utility for the current period. Sure. The, the the question that naturally follows, I, th- I think, from that is, um, and Ray, I know you were going to mention this as well, uh, oftentimes, uh, I think, in, in the regular traditional history that we have of, of the 20th century, it's it's asserted that the Great Depression was the result of some sort of excess in the 20s or some somehow the government in the 1920s did not exert itself enough. Uh, and therefore, when the 20s ended, 1929 came, Hoover came into office, and everything went right down the tubes. Is that an accurate assessment? Is it? it what would you say to, to someone who, who made the claim that, that it was, in fact, uh, the Harding-Coolidge-Hoover period that led us to the Great Depression? That is the standard explanation, and I like the way you put it. Harding-Coolidge-Hoover led us to the Depression. FDR took us out. That's the standard interpretation. That's sort of what's transmitted to us uh, in school. Um, the way it, it looks when you go back and study the period is, Harding Coolidge made it better. Hoover Roosevelt made it worse. So you have a different relationship, a different different pairs of teams. There first, Harding Coolidge made it better. Hoover Roosevelt made it worse. That's that's a short way of putting it. That's what I discovered. The policies of Coolidge did not cause a Great Depression. They preceded 
a needed market crash, which is different. And Coolidge, sure. in his own role, uh, in his own mind, would never have dreamed of interfering in the stock market because he needed, he believed very strongly that prices should find their level, that prices should settle. You've heard that word settle, maybe read it in the Wall Street Journal recently when it comes to the housing market. We don't know currently what housing prices ought to be because they're so subsidized, distorted by the government, by, by lending institutions. Uh, the market isn't settled. It's not speaking the true prices. Well, Coolidge was quite aware of that, and he thought, let things find their own prices and tell us. We need that price signal. So he expected a crash because the stock market went so high, but what he did did not cause the Great Depression. Mishlay, as we talked um, in our last podcast about Coolidge, we talked about some of the similarities and the differences that Calvin Coolidge had in his thought with Acton. I mean, Calvin Coolidge said he's got great quotes like, we must not sink into a pagan materialism. Prosperity is only an instrument to be used, not a deity to be worshipped. He really had a, gr- uh, a high understanding that you had to have a moral framework within the market. And anybody who's read him um, knows about uh, not just his um, his own religious convictions, but also just the standard um, the standard way that he talked about the importance of morality in our day-to-day lives. Can you speak to that? Oh, yes, there are many good Coolidge quotes about that that strike us as so true, and, and they're not things we hear from politicians currently, such as, uh, men do not make laws, they do but discover them. We come to laws. We don't make them up in our head. He, he had a natural skepticism to, to positive law, to, to law made up by people using their brains. He thought there were a few basic laws, and those were the laws that were good, and they were something akin to what we would call natural law. Um, maybe they came from the Constitution, and maybe they came from well before that, maybe they came from the Bible, uh, maybe they came from above, but he he just felt that intuitively, and um, I think we have to give credit there to his training, where he came from. He came out of essentially a, a very Christian culture, a Congregationalist culture. He went to college at Amherst. Amherst was originally founded, Amherst College in Massachusetts, as a college for ministers, poor ministers, he had important teachers such as Charles Garman, and most of those teachers and most of those institutions didn't believe that man made everything. They, they they had a natural humility and knew that much was unknowable and spiritual. Yeah, that's absolutely right. He also said, uh, here's just a quote I'm pulling out, let us frown upon greed and selfishness, but let us also condemn envy. And in a way, he was very forward-thinking. He saw that when there was material success or excess, that he saw some of these things that could corrupt the soul. And he was real attuned to that, and like you said, from where he came from. And I think, in a way, that's something that we've lost in, with a lot of our presidents and, and leadership today. Well, no, no, currently we have presidents who call people greedy. We've had that over and over again. Coolidge never believed that it was the job of the president to stop greed. That's the distinction. He he just recognized that greed alone doesn't take us forward. That there, that there are other things in life. So uh, his economics are very spiritual, but he did not believe that there should be uh, economic redistribution because the greedy are too rich and so on, which is the modern interpretation when we discuss the, the topic of greed. I also wanted. To, um, I think there's a great al- anecdote in the William Allen White um, in his, his whole biography when he went to Coolidge and he asked him and I think this speaks to the authenticity of Coolidge he was somebody who was a career politician so in some ways it's possible to say he could be out of favor with some segments 
of refrainers or conservatism today. But when William Allen White said he wanted to peek at the man behind the mask and Coolidge quipped back, I don't know if I can help you. Maybe there isn't any. There was a real authenticity, even for people who disagreed with Coolidge, had to admit that he was a, you know, he's been cast in a positive light when it comes to civility, the way he treated his opponents in the opposite political party. So speak to his authenticity a little bit and, and, and how that's unique. But I, authenticity is a hard word. Um, I, I know what you mean, though, and I think the listener knows what you mean to be authentic. Uh, the authenticity of Coolidge was his sense of service. He didn't believe he was the office. He didn't see the presidency as a bully pulpit. We know that phrase from Theodore Roosevelt. He uh, saw it as um, for the office is greater than the man. The man served the office. So another phrase like that would be um, there's, there's a famous situation where Coolidge was walking along with a lawmaker from Missouri, and uh, the lawmaker is trying to cheer him up. Coolidge was down a lot. Uh, cheer him up and pointed to the White House and said, who lives in that that house, that pretty house, right? And Coolidge said, nobody does. They just come and go. And that was not his way of saying, I'm depressed, which is how we would interpret it now, or I believe in ghosts. It was his way of saying the office, the institution, is greater than any man, and men are there to serve it. And, and that's extremely authentic because uh, it's, it, it, it's just a, a very hard... It, you couldn't do that inauthentically because it's so hard to serve one's office and not oneself, isn't it? Especially after a time. One becomes the office. So he must have been working quite hard. Uh, the refrainer word is a word I used um, uh, in first in an essay uh, about Coolidge put together, by, interestingly, by the National Notary Association. Um, because nowadays we think a president should be active. Even Mitch Daniels, uh, who is a budgeteer, like Coolidge has talked about the importance of action. Currently, Coolidge believed in inaction, and inaction by many, including at times by William Allen White, was was interpreted to be weakness. But it wasn't. In fact, it's harder to be inactive than to be active often. Ms. Schlaes, also I wanted to ask you, you're working on a piece for National Review concerning this whole idea of what Coolidge would be saying in the election today. Could Tell us a little bit about that and what you've discovered and, and your own thoughts on that. Oh, that piece should be appearing uh, today when we're taping, so it will be out when, when this show airs. Um, and uh, it, it looks at what a candidate like Coolidge might do. Um, we have the question today about certainty and uncertainty. Coolidge, and indeed Harding before him, was for certainty. Let's, the business community can take anything better than uncertainty was, was his rule. He might have put it in different language slightly, but that's what he meant. Certainty is good, even if certainty is a certain, the policy that certain is imperfect. It's better than uncertainty. So that would be a focus. Smaller government would be a focus. And in this piece, in National Review, and I'm honored that, that the magazine gave me this chance, um, I talk about the budget. Because where Coolidge differs from the modern supply-siders, especially Reagan, um, everyone, I, I work at uh, the George W. Bush Center. I work with President Bush. I, you know, I, I know very well the work of his father. We all know these presidents and Nixon and, uh, you know, Ford and all the Republicans before them. Coolidge was different within his budget obsession. He was an austerity president. Right. And today, um, especially uh, some presidents, especially Democrats, think austerity is a horrible word. So I, I thought that was fascinating. And in Coolidge, I spend about 60,000 words talking about his economics. That may put off 
some listeners, but it doesn't put off me because we have to know Coolidge is the personification of the pre-World War II economics. And since we don't really understand the pre-World War, pre-World War II economics, we need a way to get at those economics to, to figure out what they were actually thinking and what their logic was. And it's appealing to do it through a person, and that was he. Well, Ms. Lays, I know that your uh, your time is a little bit limited here, so I wanted to make sure that we got in um, the the, uh, the this. Uh, you you mentioned prior to uh, our going on the air here that you've got some special projects coming up or some some sort of an exciting announcement to make. I want to give you time to do that. Well, um, uh, one announcement that would be super nice would be uh, to make is the book's already on pre-order, so it is for sale. I, I noticed that today. Barnes and Noble is selling it. Excellent news. Um, and uh, so that's good. It'll be out in the new year very early, I hope, maybe a little later. But it's it's for sale, and it's finished, so it's in production. It took a while to make this book, so I want to be sure listeners know that. Um, mm-hmm. One of the efforts I always undertake is economic communication. Why on earth uh, should we reach these points if make these points if nobody listens to us? Mm-hmm. Right, right. What, yep. We're talking to when 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 professors or teachers or journalists talk to one another. What's the utility in that? It's just vanity. So I'm always looking for ways to reach younger people or people who don't normally read history or economics, but who have great curiosity and knowledge about economics just intuitively. So Coolidge, that's one way. It's a biography. It's not an economic tract. It's, it's a man who was perfect and who failed so very often and yet succeeded and, and taught us about econ. The other announcement I was going to make is uh, we have many, many Spanish language readers of Forgotten Man who read it in English but wish the book were in Spanish. Um, we have German readers. The book is in German. It is in Italian. Um, it is in uh, several Asian languages. Uh, but I can feel that people want more of Forgotten Men, which is this book about the 30s that is the sequel to Coolidge. And we're now publishing a graphic novel of Forgotten Men. A and graphic the novel? the artist is Paul Rivoche, R-I-V-O-C-H-E. And he's a Canadian uh, genius, I should say. And it's a full-length book, a uh, graphic novel or cartoon version of Forgotten Men. And I don't think it's any less subtle than the print version of Forgotten Men. It is not for children. Sure. It's just more visual, uh, and we have a little econ text at the end, in fact. And I'm hoping to translate um, that into Spanish, because I have so many would-be readers uh, south of the border who probably don't want to read 450 words, excuse me, 450 pages, or whatever <laughs> Forgotten Man is, um, about filibusters and very political arcana. They, they want to get to the political economy point, which they all already understand so well, which is that uh, government makes things worse, inflation is, is bad, things they know and which, you know, were clear in the 30s or deflation can be bad, whatever. So this, this I'm so excited about this because Paul Rivoche is a great artist and his pictures of canes uh, will never be forgotten. <laughs> they are so beautiful and he's made the 30s come alive visually through Forgotten Man graphics. So hopefully that will be published next year as well, a bit after Coolidge, the volume, Forgotten Man graphics. Well, that is amazing. I'll look forward to the Coolidge graphic novel as well then, now that you've got the oh, Forgotten Man out. Actually, Paul and I were just talking about that. Um, it, I, graphic novel format is, is a wonderful way to talk to people uh, who are intelligent but are more visual. Sure. Right? right. Maybe yeah. they're smarter. They often are. Well, excellent, Amity. That's wonderful news. And uh, I want to remind everyone again, the books that we've been talking about primarily here, The Forgotten Man, 
which is uh, available Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and, and your better bookstores anywhere. And then the forthcoming book is Coolidge. Coolidge. That's available now on BarnesandNoble.com. You said on pre-order. pre-order. On pre-order. By the time it'll be delivered, I promise. <laughs> we delayed this book uh, to go into the econ, and I'm I'm quite satisfied that the book now does that. Excellent. He, Coolidge was an amazing man. We should all be like him in his sense of service um, and in his appreciation of the economy, his appreciation of what's right. He gets back to America. Um, you know, to an America that we can admire. We don't have to be precisely like it, but we mm-hmm. can admire it. And he represents something in us that's too little expressed. Our guest has been Amity Schles, the author of The Forgotten Man and the forthcoming biography of Coolidge. Uh, uh, Ms. Schles, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yes, thanks a lot. No, no, well, thank you. And I would say that Acton has been all over the Coolidge case. And yeah. I would say to the listener, where is the relationship between Coolidge and Acton, because I bet someone will find one, perhaps through Dwight Morrow, Coolidge's dear friend, who often sent him books and talked with him about ideas, perhaps through Bruce Barton, another Amherst man who worked with him in various ways, including on publicity. So this is the mystery of Acton's similarity to Coolidge. That someone's going to someone's going to find something on, I believe. Yeah, I, I was just reading through Have Faith in Massachusetts, where I saw a lot of the act in connection with Calvin Coolidge, and I do believe that there's some quotes. Uh, there, there's a, there is one Lord Acton quote not attributed to Lord Acton, but very similar where Coolidge uses. And what is that Lord Acton quote? I, I'll have to get back to you because I know that I found it, and I can't. And I was trying to read back through Have Faith in Massachusetts over the last few weeks looking for it because I know that you and I did, discussed this before. But I believe I saw one that was very similar. So at some point, whether it was at Amherst or, or somewhere else, I, I think um, Coolidge was probably exposed to some thought of Lord Acton at some point. It would not surprise right, me. And, uh, the question would be, uh, Acton was Catholic, right? Yes. So you want to look uh, in Coolidge's Congregationalist minister talked about why it was wrong to stay in office too long. He didn't say absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right. But he said something to that effect. And I, I think Protestants, to be fair, came to that themselves somehow. Um, it, 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 so where was that theologically? Right. You know, uh, and who talked? But but Morrow, the one I would hunt for is Morrow. Right. Um, Morrow was quite right, wide read, widely read, and went to Europe and thought a lot about the U.K. Um, and probably picked it up uh Anyway, it's, it's a mystery that I bet Acton can find the answer to, and that will be a scoop. We, we discovered, <laughs> um, I've got to go, but we discovered a one Coolidge quote that was false, that was not his. Yes. Uh, the Perseverance quote. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, dis- uh, we discovered that through, um, uh, basically through deep databases. We found trade journals where someone else said that quote before Coolidge. Well, Amity Schles, uh, you, you, we, we know that you have to get going, but we want to thank you once again for taking some time to talk to us today. No, thank you, and I'd like to come out there and let me know when. Um, very, very much appreciate it. We'll be happy to have you. And one final thought, we will keep up uh, with Coolidge on the Power Blog and through other Acton publications. So if, if you've subscribed to those, you will be in luck because we will keep on the Coolidge case here at Acton. Oh, right. I, of course I will. Um, uh, you know, of course I will. I'm a big fan. Okay, thank All you. Right. Thank you, Amity, and thank you to everyone for listening today. We appreciate it very much. That's Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody. Mm-hmm.